you can uh, stay standing for the reading of Scripture this morning. We're in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 9. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonai, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray. God, thank you for the scripture as relevant today as the day it was written. Teach it from us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Morning. Good to see everybody. If you have a Bible, you can turn to that passage, Acts chapter 17. Uh, That's our main passage for this morning. I'll have a couple other ones that I'm going to jump around and look at. Uh, as uh, as we move around this morning. Uh, we're in, uh, if you're new, my name's Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here. We're in a series called Experience Redemption, which is kind of a yearly uh, thing for us. Uh, this is only our second year, so I can say that, uh, that we come back to, though, every year as a way of reminding us uh, the church that God has called us to be. And so over these three weeks, we're in week two, we're looking at our three values uh, as a church and just reminding ourselves of uh, of the church that, that we think God called us to be. Here's how we say it around here. Uh, we want to be the church that Jesus came to plant. And uh, the way to do that is to have the mission that Jesus gave. Uh, the way we say it is RCC family exists to go and make disciples through biblical teaching and meaningful worship. Uh, and then when we take that mission, which we really just stole from Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, and then we have values underneath that that remind us how to operate and uh, how to be set up as a church. And so last week, uh, we said it this way, value number one, that this is God's church. And we say that as a reminder to us that uh, in the scriptures, there was a way the church was set up. And to be the church that Jesus came to plant, we have to be the church or set up the way Jesus set the church up. In Ephesians 4, Jesus makes it pretty clear who's in charge of the church. He is. He is. The way he says this is that he is the head, that we are to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. And so we looked at that at Ephesians chapter 4, and what we talked about last week is um, the job is not for us to come up with some kind of man-made vision or uh, uh, to, to sit out and ask, now, what do we want to create and, and what type of church do we want to have? No, Jesus already planted his church. He told us what it's supposed to look like and how it's supposed to operate through the scriptures. Now, today, uh, we'll talk more on, on what is church supposed to, uh, to look like? How is it supposed to operate? Now, we do this understanding that there's a lot of freedom in the scriptures on what church can look like. 
uh, and that we're given that freedom through the leading of the Holy Spirit um, under the authority of Scripture. And so we're going to look at a couple different passages this morning asking the question, how is the church supposed to operate? Here's how we say it around here. Church should be simple but meaningful. And I'm going to try to explain what I mean by that and why it is that we say that. As a way of a quick example, a few years back now, this is six, seven years ago, I had to buy a gift for somebody in my life. And uh, in the process of thinking about what gift to buy them, I had no idea of something I could buy them that would be meaningful, which made me, this is somebody that I was dating like six or seven years ago. And um, we started dating in that awkward phase right before Christmas. We were like, am I supposed to buy him a gift? Am I not supposed to buy him a gift? And I had no clue on a meaningful gift to, to purchase this person. And so what I did instead is just spent a ton of money okay? Like 20 times more money than I should have spent because I didn't know what to buy them that was meaningful. And so on Christmas day, it showed up and I um, gave all of these gifts and it was almost embarrassing about the amount of money that I'd spent on this person for the amount of time that we had been dating. And um, they had bought me like three gifts that were like less than $50, okay? Uh, and, but were meaningful, Okay, we broke up shortly thereafter, okay, um, after this moment. The point being this, I spent an excessive amount of money to distract from the point that I didn't have anything meaningful to offer them. This morning, I want to talk about what it looks like to make sure that we don't distract from what church and what the gathering of believers is supposed to be. And at times, I think what we can do is we can try uh, auxiliary things because we don't have anything meaningful to offer. And so let's point this out in the scriptures because that's always where we have to start. I want to start today, not in our primary text. We'll get there. I want to start in 1 Corinthians 14, which is the, I keep stepping on this thing. Okay. I want to start in 1 Corinthians 14, which uh, is a famous chapter, probably the most famous chapter in scripture on the way a church service can look. Now what's happening in 1 Corinthians 14 is Paul is addressing the church in Corinth and talking about some problems that he sees in their church. Now this isn't uh, the first problem in chapter 14. I mean, he's got 13 chapters ahead of it. And Throughout that, he's consistently addressing problems in the church. But every time, whether it's in chapter 1 when he's talking about division, or chapter 5 when he's talking about sin, uh, or chapter 9 and 10 when he gets into some other topics, every time he talks about the issue, he doesn't attack the issue. He talks about uh, the purpose of the church. Said another way, he doesn't look in and say, oh, your, your problem is this specific issue, and let's address that to a deep level. He says, your problem is you're understanding church incorrectly. So let me address church in a bigger mindset. This is what Paul does all throughout 1 Corinthians 14. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, he does address a specific issue. The issue is that people are too rampant in the power of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. We've all said uh, the problem in the modern church is probably not too much Holy Spirit, okay? Like, that's probably not the problem. But in that church in Corinth, that was the issue. They're, they're, they were using uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a way that was disorderly and improper. And so Paul is going to speak to it, but more so he's going to say, but let's remind ourselves what church is. So this is what he says. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, 
Will they not say that you are out of your minds? This is the modern way of saying, won't people walk in and think you're weird? Won't people walk in and think, this is crazy? See, some people think that the seeker-sensitive church movement started 40 years ago in Chicago. It's not true. It started 2,000 years ago in Corinth. Here's the point. Paul was looking at the church in Corinth and he was saying, you guys are using your personal preference for worship as an excuse to do whatever you want and people are walking in and they think you're weird and you're losing them. And Paul's actually correcting them for doing that. He's saying it's an immature approach to elevate your worship preference over the outsider. He's saying, take notice of what they see, of what they feel, of what they experience when they walk into church uh, in your gathering. Be aware of it. Remember, this is the same guy who said, I will surrender all of my rights for the sake of someone coming to the gospel. Paul understood what it meant to lower his own preference so that other people might come to Jesus. Now, here's the quest, my friends. The same guy who says this is the same guy who later says, don't quench the Holy Spirit and don't forbid certain things in your gathering. This creates a paradox, it seems, or it creates at least a a tension for the modern church to ask the question, how are we cognizant of the unbeliever walking in, but still operating out of the fullness of the Holy Spirit? How do we do both? It's not one or the other. And where we have certainly all probably been in church throughout our lives, if that's something we grew up in, or we can just be a diagnosis of ourselves throughout the years, it is easy to hop to one extreme or the other. It's easy to hop and say, no, no, no. We take the Holy Spirit precedence over everything, and we're going to operate out of feeling, and we're going to operate out of, oh, no, this is what I think the Holy Spirit said to me, and it will be chaos. And then other people go to the other side, and they say, no, 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 no. We don't want anyone to ever feel uncomfortable or to think we're weird or anything like that. So we're going to tone it down, and we're going to be completely, whether it's completely programmed or it's completely stale, we hop to the other side. But in scriptures, and here's the beauty of the kingdom, and here's the beauty of the gospel, it's rarely left or right, up or down. It's usually something altogether different. And so here's what Paul is trying to teach. He's saying, remind yourself what the church is, because when you gather, you should be aware of the outsider, and you should also not quench the power of the Holy Spirit. It's both. It's both. So he says, won't you, won't they say they're crazy? They're out of their minds. Look at them. Then he says this, but if all prophecy, and he's getting to the point, but if all, so am I, but if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's saying, be aware, be aware of that coworker that you invited and you finally got him to go to church. Be aware of the family member. By the way, you know why some of us have a problem? Because we haven't sat next to an unbeliever in church for a really long time. And the moment you sit next to an unbeliever in church for the first time, you start thinking different thoughts. You have different thoughts. Because when the unbeliever is sitting next to you that you love and you wanted to get to church, all of a sudden you're willing to sacrifice anything that you wanted because you want to make sure that they experience God. But if all prophecy in an unbeliever or an outsider enters, that's too vague if the person that you've wanted to come to Jesus for years and you have been praying for enters. 
He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. What he's talking about? He's talking about an inner working of the Holy Spirit happens when they're there. And so falling on his face, can you imagine that? Do you imagine that person that you've wanted to come to church for years finally shows up and that this is their experience? What would you want? Would you want them walking out saying, well, that was weird? Or would you want them walking out saying, Jesus just grabbed my heart. Man, God is real. He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is not the Christian who's doing this. This was the unchristian that walked into your church, and this is the conclusion that they're walking out with. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that the church ought to be a place where the unbeliever or the outsider walks in, and the conclusion that they draw is God was there. God was there. Maybe they don't like Jesus. Maybe there's some of it that was a little foreign to them because they're not used to it. But at the bottom, they would walk on and say, but I'll tell you something, God was there. There was a power there. There was a presence there. There was something there. Now, what does that power and that presence look like? How does that happen? Well, we say, let's keep it simple and meaningful to make sure that that can happen. So we're going to look at the church in a different church, not the church in Corinth, but the church in Thessalonica to help us understand this. There's all these letters, by the way, in the scriptures, Ephesians, uh, uh, Thessalonians, uh, Corinthians, uh, Philippians. You know, all these letters are written to churches that were planted. And if you look at the book of Acts, you get to see the story of how that particular church was planted. And the, the letter means a lot more to you once you see how the church got started. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Acts chapter 17 is the story of the church in Thessalonica, a real city. It's the, the story of that church getting started. So now when they had passed through, they is Saul, uh, I'm sorry, Paul and Silas. Now when Paul and Silas had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Notice this, that Paul did not start rarely ever. In fact, almost every time that Paul goes to plant a church, he doesn't start with the irreligious. He starts with the religious. Okay, uh, when Paul wants to get something started, he goes to the people who have everything right except they're missing Jesus. That's who he often starts with. In fact, the history of movements of God and revivals are not typically unsaved people becoming saved. They're typically religious people discovering Jesus. Life being breathed into dead religion. And so Paul shows up and he goes to the synagogue first where dead religion is existing. And he goes there and he shows up and it says, Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days, not just one, not just two, not just, uh, well, and three, right? Three, he gets there and he's like, I'm just gonna keep going and I'm gonna be persistent. For three days or three different weeks, Paul goes in and he reasons with them from the scriptures. He gives them both intellect and preaching. He's not just going to say, accept Jesus, accept Jesus, accept Jesus, and try to um, win them with power. And he's also not just going to have an intellectual or logical argument with them. He's going to do both. He's going to give them both. He's going to reason with them from the scriptures. <laughs> that idea of reason in there is that he's, he's giving an intellectual approach to them. 
And Paul was there, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Here we see Paul, and we see this throughout the rest of the book of Acts, teaching us what gospel movements are supposed to look like, how they're supposed to be founded, and what biblical churches are supposed to be based on. And it always starts with biblical preaching about Jesus. This is the beginning and should always be the beginning and not just the beginning, but the continuation of biblical church. Paul later in Colossians and in other parts of 1 Corinthians is going to say, we don't engage. We don't engage in worldly conversation or an empty philosophy. That the point of church, the point of uh, the gathering of the saints is not anything other than the proclamation of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. That we're not supposed to get into that the role of the church is not personal development. It's not self-help. It's not philosophy. It's not politics. It's not, this is how you should view the world. It's not psychology. It's that there's many outlets for those all over the place. Go to Barnes and Noble, turn on your TV, read the newspaper. The church has a singular focus, proclaiming Jesus. Jesus. None of those other outlets do that. It's ours and ours alone. It's the one thing that we have in the church that we can hold claim to that no one else can grab. It's ours. We get to proclaim Jesus. And what does he say? By the way, this is the simple part. It's the simple part. We don't need everything else. I don't, we don't need a, a lot of other, if we, have G, if, we, if we elevate Christ, oh, and it's meaningful because it's the most meaningful thing. What did he, what about Jesus? What's the gospel? That Christ had to suffer. Why did Christ have to suffer? Christ had to suffer because of the depravity of humanity. Because uh, God gave us a chance in the garden and we uh, disobeyed him. Because God gave us the law and we rejected it. Because God gave us Jesus and we crucified him. And every time that God reached out to love us, we turned back to him and said, we don't want it. And because of that, Jesus had to suffer. And so Paul shows up and he speaks to the Jews and he's explaining to them, don't you see how every time God has reached out to us, what we've done is we've rejected him. And so now because of that, Christ had to suffer and then Christ had to die and he had to go to the cross because he had to pay the penalty for humanity's sin. And this was part of his suffering was the taking on of my sin, of your sin, of all of eternity's sin, eternity past and all future humanity and our depravity. Christ took it on us. He suffered and he died. And he had to do it, Paul says. There was no way for any other type of salvation. There was nothing that you and I could have done. We couldn't have earned it. We couldn't have worked it. There's not a philosophy. There's not a government system. There's not an economic situation that's gonna come around and, and, and deplete man's depravity. We will always have enough. There's only one thing that can take care of it, Christ. Christ crucified. And so Paul shows up. And he says, Christ had to suffer and he had to rise from the dead. He had to rise from the dead because it was the only way that sin could be conquered, that you and I could experience salvation. And he did. So Paul shows up to the religious, teaches them Jesus. He said, it's the same one that you rejected and put on the cross. All biblical church starts 
and revolves around biblical preaching. Here's how you know it's biblical preaching because it does what the Bible does, points everything to Jesus, right? Listen, there's a way to use the Bible in teaching that isn't biblical teaching because it doesn't go back to Jesus. It's only biblical teaching and preaching when it goes back to Jesus. Not me, not you, not anything else. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, here's what happens when biblical teaching is, this is what's supposed to happen. Biblical teaching is done in a way that is biblical and it is of the Holy Spirit and um, is done in grace. Here's what is supposed to happen. Some of them were persuaded. Some of them, (laughs) just kind of a funny term. Some of them, like, yes, people reject biblical preaching all the time. It happens. Even Paul didn't win them all. Some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul. Now, last week we um, saw uh, in, in Ephesians chapter four that one of the works of the Holy Spirit when Jesus is the head of the church is that Jesus through his Holy Spirit joins and holds the church together. The exact same word it joined in Ephesians four is the word that's used here in Acts chapter 17, which means this, that when biblical preaching goes out, when, uh, when biblical preaching is happening, then what, what the Holy Spirit can do with biblical preaching is he can change people's hearts, he can convert them, and then he can form them into a body. And so the way that his body is supposed to be formed, the way his church is supposed to be formed, is biblical teaching is supposed to go out, the Holy Spirit is supposed to work interchange, and then through that, the Jesus being the rallying point, people are supposed to be united around it together. Here's what happens in Thessalonica. Some of them were persuaded. Uh, They joined Paul and Silas. In fact, if we reference 1 Thessalonians, uh, which is the letter that's then written to this church later, Paul says this, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you all turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There was repentance and they said, we want into this. We want a part of this as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. When biblical preaching is supposed, it goes out, what what is also a sign of biblical preaching is that there is a diversity of response. Okay, now we hear the term diversity and we think racial diversity. Uh, That's not necessarily the only type of diversity that there is. That's not even necessarily the diversity that we always see in the scripture. It could mean a diversity of age. It could mean a diversity of economic disparity. It could mean a diversity of um, faith background and and what they came out like these individuals were. And so you see a diverse response. You know the gospel is moving when both religious people are turning to Jesus and irreligious people are turning to Jesus. When rich are turning to Jesus, when poor are turning to Jesus. When the, uh, when the highly educated are turning to Jesus uh, and the uneducated are turning to Jesus. These are signs of gospel movements. As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. For our aim as a church, what, what's important here? What's important here is we're seeing how a biblical church was founded and established. And what it was founded and established on was, and whenever we call the gospel simple, um, it's not an oxymoron, it's it's something. Is the gospel simple? Yes. Yes, it is. And it's also the most complex thing in the world. It is both, right? It is simple that I was depraved and in my depravity, Christ gave me his perfection. That's a simple truth. (laughs) And it's also the most complicated thing in the world. But simple is this. Preach and proclaim Jesus. Now, here's what happens, by the way. 
This is not um, uncommon even to this day. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rebel. You can spot religion when it opposes the gospel. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. If you didn't know the word Jason was in the Bible or the name, there it is. Seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's a really fun phrase. These men who have turned the world upside down, now they're here and we've got to do something about this. And when we hear this phrase, um, we have to actually take a a step into it and look into it because there's actually something going on here. uh, I think deeper than just the gospels changing the world. Uh, That's not actually what these guys are saying. What these guys are saying is this, and it's another sign of religion, that even when gospel movements are happening, people on the outside still don't get it. They don't get it. Because these guys are looking in, and here's what they're saying. Oh, these guys are changing the nature of the world. But Jesus himself said, I didn't come to establish a kingdom of this world. I came to establish a kingdom that's in this world, but it's not of this world. These guys still think that they're trying to establish some type of earthly kingdom. And that's not why Jesus came. Had he come to do that, he would have never died and he would have never ascended up into heaven. These guys still don't get it. They still don't get it. They still don't get the kingdom of the heart. uh, uh, As some authors have called it, the inside out or the upside down kingdom. They They still haven't understood that the kingdom that Jesus came to plant, the kingdom that Jesus came to form, is a kingdom that, that all it does is it just flips the values that we see out. That when the world says, take, the kingdom says, give. The world says, do for yourself, the kingdom says, do for others. When the world says, protect, the the kingdom says, be vulnerable. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. By the way, um, this is a temptation that happens all the time. And Christians fall into this all the time. And what they, what they try to do is, 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 try to, um, is try to pit Christianity against government. And try to pit it against it. Right? We do this in politics all the time. Right? We try to pit our faith against government, our faith against government, our faith, our faith against politics, or whatever it might be. The only biblical discussion on faith and politics and faith in government is pretty much, don't worry about it. Just love Jesus. Don't get caught up into it. Don't let it be a stumbling block. Don't be more committed to your politic or your government than you are Jesus. Let that take care of itself. Elevate the king. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jesus and the rest, they let them go. By another way... uh, Another, by, by the way, another sign uh, that you've got, that, that, that religion is opposing you is when it's more concerned with money than it is movement. We see this at the end. I'm going to hop over to First Thessalonians because I want to see the second thing that we need to see this morning. But the first thing we have to remind ourselves this as a body is that the purpose of our gathering here on Sunday morning in our life groups, in our community as a family, the purpose of our gathering and the purpose of our church has to be the simple proclamation 
of the gospel. That it is our biggest call and is our number one task to proclaim Jesus in everything that we do. Now we're going to hop over to 1 Thessalonians because there's a couple of other things we have to see here about this church in Thessalonica. I referenced this verse two or three weeks ago, and uh, it talks about how in this experience that we all just read about in Acts chapter 17, when the church in Thessalonica was started, and you just saw, you all saw how it was started, Paul says this about that church. He says, our gospel, or the gospel, came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is looking in, and he's reminding this church now of the church that they were supposed to be when they were planted. He's writing this some years later, and he's saying, don't you remember? Don't you remember? This is what we're doing in this series. Don't you remember when this thing all got started? church in Thessalonica. Don't you guys remember what it was that caused you all to turn from idols, to form this body in this city, to unite in a way uh, like other people looked in and said, we've got to stop this thing. Look at it. uh, it. It's infringing upon our power. Don't you remember how it started? When it started, what was it all about? It was about Jesus and it was Jesus and it was, uh, it wasn't just a stale dead gospel. It was an alive, full, powerful gospel. It was something that stirred your heart. It was something that made you alive. It was something that, uh, uh, that, that, that caused you to live in a new way. He's saying, this is the gospel. Don't you remember this, church? He's saying, don't forget this, church. Come back to it. Be revived in it. Always come back to Christ. Don't get caught up chasing other things. Don't get caught up chasing emotional highs. Don't get caught up chasing modern church goals. Don't get caught up in anything other than the proclamation of Jesus. Now in this, Paul's gonna spend the first couple parts of 1 Thessalonians reminding them of how the Holy Spirit was a part of what they were doing and there was power in it. And then he's gonna transition into the second part of, uh, uh, of when, when that outsider, now referencing back the Corinthians passage, the second part of when the outsider walks into the church and they're supposed to walk in and they're supposed to say, okay, I can understand what's going on, right? And, and the hope is when that outsider walks in that they go, God was here, God was here, God was here. The first part of that is proclaiming Jesus. What's the second part? The second part we see in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself And our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. What's the second part of it? Vibrant spiritual relationship and love one for another. Love one for another. As we see all throughout the book of Acts, and then as Paul, um, uh, multiple times in the book of 1 Thessalonians and other uh, letters as he writes to the churches, uh, whether it's in Rome or in, in, uh, or in Philippians and in Colossians, he reminds them to love one another. By the way, we see John do this as well over and over in his epistles in 1 John and 2 John. That the marks Paul is saying and we're reminding ourselves of this morning, the marks of the biblical church are the proclamation of Jesus, the simple proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of Jesus, 
and the spiritual community that occurs in the people that are a part of it. Or as we say it around here, simple and meaningful. Simple and meaningful. Simple. Proclaim Jesus. Simple. Show love to one another. Meaningful. Our salvation, meaningful. The love that we experience or you ought to experience in the community of saints. For us, it's a reminder. It's a reminder that as we continue to grow as a church, as we continue to age as a church, that the two most important things we will do are proclaim Jesus and love one another. That any temptation to add or to distract from that takes us away from the foundation. Takes us away. It means... Um, <laughs> It means we have to be relentless in protecting Sunday morning, right? As a time to elevate Jesus and nothing else. It means that um, regardless of size, we have to be relentless in a commitment to show love and to serve one another. It means we can't ever um, get too big to care about an individual. It means that, um, that a budget must reflect the budget of the first church where the primary outlet of any funds received were to take care of people, right? It means, it means we can't be um, um, nervous about, about spending money to create an experience um, uh, or, or open to spending money to create an experience and hesitant about spending money to serve a person. That this, these two things are the marks of a biblical church. Simple and meaningful. 